from AM and FM stations around the country. Welcome to the Small Business Administration award-winning School for Startups Radio, where we talk all things small business and entrepreneurship. Now, here is your host, the guy that believes anyone can be a successful entrepreneur because entrepreneurship is not about creativity, risk, or passion, Jim Beach. Hello, everyone. Welcome to another exciting edition of School for Startups Radio. It is January the 10th, a wonderful Wednesday because we're going to make it that way. It's a choice. We can decide if each and every day are good or bad. It is a choice. Even when bad things happen, you can still decide to have a great day. I have decided to have yet another amazing show. I feel like I don't remember the guy's name, the ring doorbell guy. He was on the show. Right after I think he sold his thousandth unit or something like that. And now that's a billion dollar company. I feel like that's where we are today with both of our guests. We have Howard Chang. He is running the Airbnb for office space. It's an amazing concept. If you have leftover office space in your uh, offices, your office room since empty half the time, Howard's going to solve that problem. And then Dr. Jill. Scheifelbein has started a bean. Scheifelbein has started a company called Render. It is the coolest AI use I've seen yet. It takes you and makes a digital clone of you, which you can then email people. It, uh, it's such a cool tool, sales tool. I love it. We got a great show. We're going to get started right now. Very excited to introduce my first guest today. His name is Howard Chang, entrepreneur at 20, bankrupt at 29. And then very successful since then. He has been a marketing guy and about five years ago started a company called um, the Turn Lab. It is a marketing tech combination and an incubator. We will have him describe it. They have just incubated a company called Just Boardrooms, which is in the Airbnb for office space market. Very interesting. Howard, welcome to the show. How are you doing? Great. Thanks for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. Ah, the pleasure is mine. So what is a marketing tech incubator company? You know, about 25 years ago, I launched an integrated ad agency. And honestly, I had tons of fun building that business. Uh, And about Seven or eight years ago, I was having conversations with CEOs at various companies, and they were talking about how irrelevant ad agencies had become for them, that agencies had just sort of become hands, and they needed people that were problem solvers that could help them like close the gap between their brands, their audience, and they started talking about consultancies and technology, and I said, you know, maybe there is a better model. Maybe instead of you know a client hiring a consultancy, then hiring an agency, then hiring a media company, then hiring a, a technology company... Maybe we can do a, you know, a slam a jam and, and put it all together, basically. So the Terra Lab was basically an experiment that we launched about five years ago. And we like to say we're one part consultancy, one part marketing agency, and one part tech company. And so that, that's sort of how we, we started with about a dozen people. We're now about 60, so it seems to be working. Um, and um, it's, it's an interesting model because we try to lead with research, 
evidence strategy before we actually execute. Um, and so we're trying to differentiate ourselves uh, in the marketplace. Very interesting. So instead of going to a, uh, an ad agency and they say, okay, you need to go build a website, you actually build the website for them. Well, we actually have nine full-time developers in-house, uh, actually based in Toronto, not even overseas. So we're quite unique in the sense that... Toronto really is believe- overseas. What are you talking <laughs> about, Howard? I don't know. I don't see a C between us, but uh, <laughs> um, I... I would, I would say that, um, it's in Europe, that, right? Uh, Toronto is part of oh, somewhere it's next to, uh, Ireland, isn't it? Well, it's funny because my, my son's an award-winning chef and he, he launched this great restaurant in Paris. I keep telling, telling people, Oh yeah, my son's cooking Paris. Well, there's a Paris, Ontario. That's about an hour drive from that's Toronto. Right, yes. And, and they're thinking like, Oh, well, Paris, Ontario, that's kind of small town, isn't it? I'm like, no, no, Paris, France. And there's a Paris, <laughs> Vegas too, as well. There is, there is a Paris, Vegas. Yeah. So anyway, Toronto, Canada. So you're, ah, you're, Canada. you're your neighbor. Oh, Canada. Canada. I actually figured that out when you were about, 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 about. Yes. All right, Howard, keep going. Yes. I'll stop interrupting you. Yeah, yeah no, no worries. Um, yeah, so I, I, I would say that the the challenge that a lot of brands have right now is, is that in this so-called omni-channel world, they, they really don't understand where when their audience spends their attention. They don't understand what they care about. They haven't built their story. And then they haven't built all the pieces that connect the dots. You know, you hear terms like you know, digital transformation and nobody even knows what that means, right? So, so what we really try to do is we really try to, you know, use, you know, market intelligence, audience intelligence. We actually host our own 10,000 member consumer panel so we can get this kind of information for our clients. And then we build strategies and then executions on that. And, you know, it's iterative, right? This whole process, um, you know, you kind of learn as you go. But one of the things we really wanted to do was solve a big problem ourselves. I mean, we always had this idea that, we could be an incubator for platforms and, and, and products and businesses um, because I've been such an entrepreneur since I was 20. I'm just really interested in building things. But in the middle of the pandemic, we saw this, what, what I would call a growing collaboration deficit amongst knowledge workers, you know, with remote and hybrid and people weren't kind of coming together and knocking heads and arguing and debating. Um, innovation was dropping, creativity was dropping. And Microsoft just published a report about a year ago they showed a massive difference in quality and product quality between the remote and their in-office team. So we decided, hey, let's let's try to solve the problem by creating a kind of a frictionless way to bring people together for moments that matter, so to speak. Um, and that's what that's what birthed Just Boardroom. So you know, we funded, we incubated, we brought some outside investors, and believe me, it's a journey. You know, stuff knows, but it it seems to be going well. We're in fifty-five markets in U.S. and Canada now, growing pretty quickly. But, you know, having done many startups, you know, we know it's a kind of jagged map to success. It's not a straight line. So, you know, you got to kind of be prepared for all of it. All right. I got a lot of follow-up questions, Howard, and I'm going to digress <laughs> first. You said that there was a Microsoft study about remote versus in office. Yes. I didn't hear about that. Tell me about that, please. You said there was a striking result. Yeah, I don't remember the exact numbers, but it was thousands, tens of thousands of employees that they studied um, globally. And they looked at um, teams that were predominantly remote and teams that were predominantly in office. And they actually didn't notice it. They, they were first trying to study productivity. You know, can you be as productive remote? And they actually didn't know to ma- notice a massive difference in productivity. What they, what they noticed was a growing gap in 
creativity, innovation, and ultimately product quality. And I think a lot of it comes from things that, you know, I'm sure you and I run into business all the time is that when you bring people together and you can have more natural conversations, natural debates, natural discussion, brainstorming, it's, it's much easier through the pinhole of, you know, teams or zoom or, or even a phone call, you know, I, I can't see your body language. I can't tell whether you're looking at me kind of, you know, uh, in, in a, um, you know, interested way or whether you're kind of, you know, arms crossed and, um, Hey, hopefully this interview is over quickly. Cause look at this guy sounds like an idiot. Um, so I'm actually you know, cleaning being, the pool right now, to be honest, Howard, you, I, I heard some swishing, so I am, I am getting a little <laughs> suspicious. Um, but, but I do think that that in-person, um, uh, interaction is mission critical for social connection, our, our own mental health, but also it ultimately boils down to creativity and, and the quality of the outcomes we're trying to produce as a company. Very interesting. I, I don't believe that productivity is the same. I just don't believe it. Uh, I, I see myself, I see the people around me. I see the people in the neighborhood and you know, you go for a walk at two o'clock. There are a lot of other people out walking their dogs that have jobs, you know, that were, I just, you know, yeah, oh, yeah. I give an extra hour at, at nine o'clock at night. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, but it's interesting to me. It's fascinating that the creativity and the innovation goes down. That's what I think is really uh, interesting because you, I mean, that makes a lot of sense. You're stifled. You're not getting other inputs. The only input is whatever TV channel you select or whatever YouTube you're watching, <laughs> you know, and that's self-selected. So those are your inputs and you're not getting other exposures. So I have to agree well, with that I, too. And I think, you know, we're defining productivity differently, right? Like you have, we have people now that will do laundry in the middle of the day, but then they're online until 10 o'clock answering emails. So I think there's different definitions. Of yeah, productivity. yeah. Yeah. You know, I'm an entrepreneur. I've been doing that forever, so I still don't buy it. Yeah. Um, well, and, and I, and I would say, you know, the, if you, if you look at the actual numbers, which again, I can't recall the actual numbers, but there, there was a difference in productivity. It just, it wasn't as big as they expected. Uh, they saw the bigger gaps when it came to things like, um, you know, innovation okay. and product quality. And, you know, I would say that, you know, I, I looked at some, uh, articles, I think in Forbes recently that showed uh, like four in 10 remote or hybrid workers had side gigs. So yeah, maybe they are productive, but they're not necessarily being productive working on the job you think they're working on. <laughs> they could also be they could also be productive doing other things, right? So, so I think you know the future of work has changed and will continue to change. And I think you know for us, we're trying to figure out well how do we create the tools to give both companies and workers an opportunity to do uh, better in terms of you know what they're actually producing, the quality of life they're experiencing. Because in the end, you know, the, the, pow the power balance has shifted, you know, through the pandemic. Uh, it's, it kind of went really far in one direction towards the worker. It's come back somewhat. But in the end, it's going to be a bit of a hybrid world. AI is going to play a big part in this. And um, we're all going to have to figure this out. And none of us have figured it out, by the way. I've talked to tons of Fortune 500 CEOs. They're all scratching their heads. Um, they're all stubbing their toes. Um, it, it, it'll be a while before I, I think things settle. All right, Howard, I want to talk about the boardroom business more, but before that, I want to tell you about my family's side gig, and it's sort of relevant to just boardrooms. I think it'll be an interesting uh, conversation. 
Have you heard of an app called Swim Plea? Swim, S-W-I-M Plea, P-L-Y. I think I have, yes. It is Airbnb for swimming pools. You, yes. know, you want to rent a swimming pool for the afternoon or the evening, you go on Swimply and type in your zip. We are the number one pool, our family pool, and in the backyard, I'm looking at it right this second, cleaning it, as I said, is the number one pool in Georgia. Wow. That's and incredible. 150 reviews. Uh, mostly it's the, uh, the kids, if they're, you know, during the summer, if they're in town, they got to keep the pool up and clean every day. And, you know, and we have usually two or three customer sets a day and they have to do the, uh, in between cleanings and all that kind of stuff and keep track of when people are due and bill them extra and all of that stuff. But it's, uh, all it, it pays the mortgage. Let's say that. You know, I think the sharing economy is something that more and more people are going to lean into, you know, with the cost of living increases and also just, you know, whether you're worried about, you know, infrastructure costs, uh, carbon footprint uh, increase of like building more stuff. I think sharing is going to be more. So whether that's car share, swimming pool share, or in our case, sharing boardrooms and meeting rooms, um, everyone's trying to figure this out. I, I mean, there's no question that in a, from a commercial real estate point of view, there's some big challenges, you know, in Toronto, which had like a 3% occupancy pre pandemic, we're at like 18 to 21% occupancy in terms of our real estate. Now, whoa, it's whoa, predominantly stop, stop, stop. 3% vacancy, you mean, right? Va va sorry, vacancy. Oh boy. I, and now I you're 18% vacancy. Yeah. I was too distracted by the idea of going swimming right now. So I apologize. Um, so yeah, 18% vacancy, which is crazy for the fourth largest city in North America, right? So, so I, I, I think the crazy commercial real estate piece would be, it, it's crazy high. I yeah. think that's like the lowest though of the four biggest cities. I mean, uh, the rest of the cities are higher than that. American commercial vacancy is higher than 18%. Wow. That, that's, that is shocking. And maybe that's why we're growing so quickly in the U S you know, a, a lot of our hosts, our property owners and managers. Um, so yes, we have lots of co-working businesses that have come on board as hosts, uh, hotels, et cetera. But we, we've had quite a few um, uh, property managers, uh, uh, commercial real estate holding companies uh, uh, put some of their uh, properties on our, our platform because they're also grappling with the, okay, what do I do with this excess space? And so, you know, for gig workers and also corporate workers that would like a more hub and spoke model, we're creating uh, a lot of access for people now. So uh, my building, I, I, I'm very fortunate of a, a very lovely building here in, uh, in, a, in an area in Toronto called the beach near the water. We have three beautiful boardrooms in here and our front one, it's called Hermosa. Um, it gets rented out all the time, you know, cause there's lots of people that don't want to go downtown for a meeting. They'd rather meet closer to home or they want to meet their client closer to where their client is. And so I think this kind of um, flexibility is what people are seeking. It, it seems to be working like we're growing like 40% compounded month over month since we launched in March. Um, we're in 55 markets now. So it, it's pretty exciting times when it comes to how do we solve this future of work challenge. So what I understand the model, it makes total sense. I go, I need a boardroom. I rent it. How is that different from WeWork or any of the other models? You know, I've, you're not renting office space, but if I needed a boardroom, I could just go to WeWork or any of those, or just the hotel and get a boardroom for the afternoon. And they'll even cater. Uh, so what's the sure. unique advantage? 
Sure. Well, when's the last time you rented a room, a boardroom in a hotel? And, and how did that go? Uh, well, the first, my first thought is, is that I, I used to do that fairly, fairly frequently. It's been pre pandemic. So five years since I did it, mm-hmm. but the, one of the first thoughts that jumped to mind was in Philadelphia. I rented a room and it was a 12 person conference room and we had to have a projector, et cetera. And then they said, okay, well, you're going to have to have the union electrician come in and install the, the special electrical wire. Oh yeah. You know, because oh, they oh, yeah. literally have unique plugs so that you can't plug in until you get, until you pay the $195 an hour electrician union electrician to come in and plug your computer in for you. Yeah. It's so in our research, we found that. So no, well, I don't hotel- like it. I, the hotels suck, but we work was great. Was great. Yeah. Yeah. And, 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 you know, as, as you know, we work is in chapter 11 and, and there's going to be a lot of failings in this area. Because the problem with all of these models, these physical infrastructure models is they're extremely capital heavy and they have incredibly, uh, what I would call varied occupancy. So, um, I talked to uh, one of the leaders of one of the biggest WeWorking companies in the world. I won't name them, but they said that, you know, they, they, they're hovering around anywhere between 30 to 50% occupancy in most of their locations. And they have many, many locations. And so the challenge with those companies, they have a really hard time making money, right? So, so we're not any of that. We're, we're a marketplace, So we're like Airbnb. So we're like exactly that's right you're so smart you're not actually holding the the leases we don't own anything so for so we have all these co-working companies on on our platform and some hotels as well uh because it's free to list we take a 15 percent take when we rent just like like an airbnb or any of those kinds of models so you can list it for free and and build your thing and we just basically send business your way um, the big diff- the big challenge with hotels, for the most part, is they're all very manual, right? It's phone calls, the emails. We we even had um, a hotel because in this testing process, we're, we're seeing like what is involved here. They asked us to fax them an RFP for the meeting room. Right? If you can imagine, this is like six months ago. So uh, I talked to one of the executives at Booking dot com. I don't have a fax machine. I don't even have fax emulation <laughs> software anymore. <laughs> I know it's completely insane. Um, I talked to an executive at booking.com when I was uh, speaking at collision this year. And he, he said, you know what? You should just go after every single hotel on our platform. Cause none of them, ha- none of them have any automatic automated way to book a meeting room. It's all done annually. They use our platform to book bedrooms. We don't, we don't help them book their, their meeting rooms. It's a business that they don't really focus on. So, so we've now, you know, finally we've got a hotel in downtown Manhattan. We've got a few, you know, we've got some Hilton's on some Marriott's on. So they're starting to understand, Oh, you can actually make this easier for us. And so we're also educated, you know, we're a little bit at the bleeding edge here. You know, there are, you know, our idea isn't to get all the WeWorks on our idea is to get law firms, architectural firms, consultancies, all of these people have all this excess boardroom space. And you know what? They might want to meet some new business people. Like why wouldn't a lawyer want a business? Right? Like why wouldn't a business, uh, why wouldn't a lawyer or an accountant want a business executive to come into their office and get exposed to their brand and, and find out, Oh oh my God, I didn't realize there was a law firm right here. So I think there's all these kind of synergies that we're, we're seeing happen. 
Now, we have an ad agency on our platform that landed a client that came in, used board around, well, what do you guys do for a living? And said, well, we're an ad agency. Oh, we're doing an RFP. Would you like to be part of the RFP? And they actually won the business. So there's some really cool stuff that's going to happen in the sharing economy as people meet and all these little collisions happen, opportunity arises. That's a great story, Howard. Let's digress. And again, you've had an incredible career. Interesting. Uh, I love the fact that you have that you had a little financial trouble at 29 in your bio. I also had financial trouble. Mine was a little later, maybe at 31. Um, a good old $10 million bankruptcy, which was a lot of fun to go through. Oh my goodness. Howard, what are your life lessons, your entrepreneurial pet peeves? What entrepreneurship stuff do you obsess over and want to share? For example, I, I'm not a fan of creativity. I think that if you want to start a business, you should just go copy somebody else. Like 93% of businesses are. Just go copy. Don't wait for inspiration from God, the lightning bolt. Just go copy. I hate risk. I don't think entrepreneurs should risk more than five grand to start a business. Um, I think almost every business, except for a you know, airplane manufacturing can be started for five grand and we don't need any more airplane manufacturing. So we're covered. Uh, and I, I'm not a fan of passion. I think passion is uh, a word that's wrong. It's, uh, something that happens in the church, the synagogue, the mosque and the bedroom. And, uh, it's not about business passion. Uh, it's a family thing. Uh, I have passion for going to Disney with my kids, not running a business for God's sakes. I really like running a business, but they're not at the same level. Those are my things. What are your things? Well, I, I actually love what you say because, you know, the thing that people use way too much of is the word entrepreneur. Most people running a business are actually not entrepreneurs. And if you look at it, you know, you'll hear stats like, you know, 80% of companies in, in North America are small business. And that's mostly what they are. They're small business. They're small business run by what I call small business leaders. Most of these small business leaders aren't actually entrepreneurs. Entrepreneurs Give are kind example. of wired. Are you talking about dry cleaners? What are you talking about? I, I think, you know, if, if you open up a family restaurant or you open up a, um, let's say a clothing store, because you were sick and tired of working for somebody else and you wanted to, you know, be more in control of your own destiny and you make a pretty darn good living doing it actually. And that's what you do. You, you, you open up that store and you run that store and you hand it down to your kids one day. That's a small business person. An entrepreneur is a compulsive builder of things. And whether it's passion, OCD, ADHD, whatever you want to call it, most entrepreneurs I've met, the ones that have built multi-million, multi-billion dollar companies, they are a bit obsessive. I would probably put myself in that category to some extent. I don't think I'm as quite as obsessive as some of my more successful colleagues, but, but I do think you're right in many ways. I, I think my biggest problem when I was in my 20s starting a business is I thought I was the smartest kid in the room. I wasn't curious enough. I didn't ask questions enough. I didn't copy my competitors enough. I didn't look at the lessons that they learned, that they managed to muddle through with, and, and I didn't take anything away. And I would say that what led to my bankruptcy in 29 was a combination of kind of naivete and bravado. You know, the, my ego got ahead of me. I tried to build a multi-million, and I did. I built a multi-million dollar business funded essentially on 17% bank interest. Now, you would probably say to me, oh my God, what an idiot. 
But in the 80s, that's what bank interest was in the late 80s, 70%. And, and, but I didn't manage it well. I didn't ask enough people. So I do think you're right. I think you have, we have to look at other successful people and companies and really try to learn. You know, there, there's something that someone, someone told me a few years ago that really took to heart. He said, you know, the problem with most entrepreneurs is they fall in love with their solution. And what you really need to do is fall in love with the problem. And by shifting that mentality to be really thinking through the problem, we end up producing things that are more viable and more interesting to the marketplace um, and, and gives us a better chance of succeeding. So I think you had quite a few truth bombs in that rant. Uh, and, and I do think that, you know, the challenge with passion is, you know, when you make a lot of emotional decisions, it takes you away from falling in love with the problem. Very interesting. I love that. I haven't, I've never thought about falling in love with the problem before. Uh, but let me, let me tell you about the first business that I started, Howard, when I was 24, it was a summer camp business. Uh, started off with two locations doing summer camps, nothing special, sexy about that. The only thing sexy was, well, a couple of things we were, uh, in computers, teaching HTML and movie making and C++ and recursion and stuff like that, not horseback riding. And we were at Stanford and MIT and Georgetown and McGill and UCLA and uh, SMU and a whole 89 locations around the United States is what we grew to. And the thing that I always talk about that 20 years later now is that I was obsessed. I was passionate about taking kids who were not happy and making them happy for the first time. We didn't have football mm -hmm. players or cheerleaders at our camp. We had unhappy dorky kids, just like I was mm -hmm. when I was a kid. And our job I discovered after two or three years was to make them happy and to teach them that they were cool and that smart was cool. And you know, the football player was going to end up working for them and all of these sort of, you know, cliches about life. Uh, and that's what I'm, you know, that's what the, the passion ended up being taking these kids and making them happy. Does all that make sense? Yeah, it, it does. You know, the word happy, I think I, maybe it's just semantics, but I don't like the word happy. You know, I think happiness is so fleeting. You, what, what I, and, and this is what I think entrepreneurs are grappling with all the time. Like, why am I so unhappy sometimes doing this? Like banging my head against the wall, you know, having, you know, all these obstacles in front of me. I, I think what I found as an entrepreneur of, of, of a few decades now is I, I, I aim for fulfillment. And I think it's a different state of mind than happiness. When I feel fulfilled, I feel I have purpose. I feel like I'm contributing. And that actually gives me more kind of contentment than, you know, happiness. It, absolutely. I'll take those hits of joy, like when we win a big account and whatever. But I think if I built my uh, satisfactional life around happiness, I, I think I'd be pretty disappointed. Um, so I, I think, you know, for entrepreneurs, you know, shifting our mindset to a place that's healthier for us, a lot of entrepreneurs suffer from mental health issues and drug addiction issues because there's so much stress, as you know, being an entrepreneur, um, in terms of, you know, starting a business, convincing people to go along with you, convincing customers to buy from you. Uh, it's a pretty stressful, um, you know, uh, position to be in. And, and so I do think redefining how we look at success, how we look at contentment, um, and happiness, I think is important for us as well.
Howard, how do we find out more? Follow online, book some boardroom space. Well, I would definitely check out the turnlab.com, which is our marketing tech company and incubator. Um, we have an interesting uh, product called a strategy hack. We only do it for companies that qualify. So you can actually apply to see if you uh, qualify for a very, very powerful kind of uh, two hour uh, uh, workshopping session to solve one particular problem for your company. So that's one thing people should probably check out. And then go to justboardrooms.com. You know, if you have some extra boardroom space, uh, you would like to meet some potential new clients, make a little bit of money, maybe pay for a staff party, uh, go to justboardrooms.com and, and list your space for free. And, and certainly, uh, we're growing quickly across North America. Uh, we're in a lot of major markets now, uh, Austin, uh, Philadelphia, Miami. Um, but if you're looking for a boardroom, check us out. Um, and you can follow me um, on X at AdCycle, uh, ad ad cycle uh you can check out howard chang on linkedin um and uh be happy to connect fantastic howard great stuff i will love to have you back and learn how these uh how it turns out i can't wait to see uh the progress great story thanks a lot thanks so much for having me and we will be right back We are back in again still, so very appreciative that you are with us. Another great entrepreneur to introduce you to. This is one of those shows where we have just two amazing entrepreneur guests. Please welcome Dr. Jill Schiffelbein. She has had a really interesting career, and I love how she says this. She's a recovering academic. For over a decade, she taught at Arizona State University, teaching business comm and stuff like that. She's also been strangely, and I'll have to ask why, analyzed terrorist documents to provide counterterrorism messaging strategies for the military. Perhaps she's with the CIA and just won't tell us that. Anyway, she has recovered from academia, as she said, and is now the chief experience officer and a partner at Render, which is a startup specializing in synthetic media using AI to do that. She is also author of a book and a half. She wrote a book called Dynamic Communications a couple of years ago and is coming out with a dummies book soon called Effective Business Com for Dummies. It'll be out later this year and we'll have her back to talk about business com and stuff like that for the dummies book. Dr. Jill Schiffelbein, welcome to the show. How are you doing? I am doing great. Thank you so much for having me. My pleasure. So what grade do I get on the pronunciation of Schiffelbein? A plus on that. A plus. Awesome. <laughs> All right. Rendermedia.ai. Tell us about it, please. Synthetic media. Interesting term. It is. And, you know, at the time of, you know, our conversation here and when this airs, we have to think that in the AI space, generative AI, such as chat GPT, is just a little over a year old. So synthetic media is media that is produced through using different types of artificial intelligence and machine learning, uh, you know, algorithms and forms, and it produces something that is unique. So for example, one of the early types of this was um, an application known as, and it's still out there, named Dolly, where you prompt something, you could say, give me a digital image that represents New York, Colorado. 
Colorado and California in the style of Picasso, and it would generate a synthetic form of media based on what you prompted it with. But now, technology has advanced so much that we are able to have synthetic media versions of ourselves, digital clones, if you will, or as I work with them, I call them hyper-realistic custom avatars, where we can clone your video presence, your vocal presence, and then by typing a script into an application, your digital likeness, a form of synthetic media, basically performs as you on video. Oh my. Okay. So a lot of <laughs> things come to mind. Kiss. I remember the band Kiss. Yeah. Uh, I don't know when, a couple of months ago, I think, announced that they had done their last show ever. And I think they've said this 10 times now, but, you know, so many of the people do. But then a digital version of themselves marched out and performed two songs. And so the thinking is, is that they'll actually have digital versions performing at places like that new sphere arena in Vegas and mm -hmm. places like that. I'm thinking of that. I'm thinking of fake porn. Yeah, no, it's, that is where, so you trace back the history of deep fakes and we really start to have consciousness of deep fakes. And I use that term as many others do for the nefarious uses of, you know, digital cloning and, you know, deep faking as it were. And you have the first known uses were revenge porn, where women's faces were imposed on pornographic things and women lost jobs, lost careers, lost a lot, um, and were silenced in many ways by this. And it went into the political realm where politicians and elections were lost in different places because of fake deep fake media that was put out how do we fight that you know the, the reality is and this is not to scare people but it's the reality we live in today if you have a single image of yourself online in about 10 seconds of your audio someone who really wanted to could create a deep fake video with you a deep fake is essentially doing to video what many people do with Photoshop. It takes a real image, Photoshop does, and then you manipulate over that image. A deep fake takes a real video or a real photo, for example, and then manipulates the audio or transposes a face over that. The difference being with fully synthetic media is it's taking these forms and generating something completely new from it. So it's not editing something that already exists is generating right. something new so that's a huge differentiation right there i think oh it's it's massive and when i first started down this road two years ago which was relatively early on in that space it's people were like oh so you're faking people i'm like no you're owning your own digital clone and you're owning your own ip and you're doing this behind a secure platform where you can disclose that hey this is what the digital version of me looks like no other digital versions of me are accurate Okay. Why, why do I do this? So in other words, yeah, let me ask why, why, why do I do this? Jill? You know, my, the whole reason I got into this, um, and if, if you'll allow me just very quickly to rewind to a brief, like career based story here, is that okay? Oh, of course. We love stories. Stories uh, are the best radio. 
They are. So, you know, imagine little nine-year-old Jill growing up in a small town in Kansas, Pittsburgh, Kansas, no H. And I became very, very good at art, like became decently talented at painting and drawing to the point where I was sending things to national contests and placing in these things. So my mom, the amazing mother she was, uh, talked to my dad, amazing dad he is. And they said, well, let's get her an art tutor. She really likes this stuff. So I had a private art tutor. But this was in the late 80s in a small town in Kansas and about, oh, six, eight months into this, you know, tutelage, this person moves. Well, there's no other tutor in this small town that can teach me art in this way. And what do you do then? Maybe a VHS tape. I mean, Bob Ross and I had an intimate relationship in my childhood, right? Like that was the best you could do. So fast forward to online education that really opened up worlds for people, no matter where they were from, no matter what their physical uh, household, economic, geographic restraints were, would now have access to information. And it became my passion to unite those worlds of education and communication and technology to make those experiences just as good in any way possible as physical in-person experiences are. Not saying they're the same at all, but for people who can't have those physical experiences, my belief was that they deserve as great of digital experiences as possible. For now, with these hyper-realistic avatars, it's not replacing you as a human, but rather it's allowing you, let's say, as a business owner to leverage yourself more. And that's where my passion for it comes because we know from hundreds of research studies, yes, recovering academic here, that personalization, customization, and choice, we can provide those things in business to our customers, to our employees, when we can provide those things in election to constituents, when we can provide those things to students in learning, those three things move the needle. But why aren't teachers, for example, making customized videos for each and every single student they have? Well, because it's not enough time in the day. But if you have a digital version of yourself to be able to deliver personalized messages with your likeness, you're able to at least add more social presence to what you're delivering instead of just doing it via text. So you get more cues and tone and content in that delivery. So instead of sending your publicist an email, I could send them a render dot render media dot AI video of me saying publicist. Thank you so much for introducing me to Dr. Jill Scheffenbein. She will be a perfect guest and I'd love to have her. Uh, here's the link to sign up. And it's a cute little digital avatar of me delivering that message so that when the publicist gets it, they're like, wow, this is so cool. I've got to send this to the client just to let them know how excited, you know, am I painting the picture here? Is this yeah. all? You absolutely are. I mean, and, and think of other uses. So I use this all the time. Um, before I'm meeting with a potential client for the first time, I will send a video before our discovery call and be like, you know, hi, you know, my human, the real Dr. Jill Schiffelbein is super excited to meet with you on insert date. But before this meeting, she really wants to make sure she's as prepared as she can be. So would you please send over, you know, and then insert whatever I need them to send over so I can review it. Um, so now you get a taste and feel of what Jill looks like. You'll see the real version on your meeting on and again remind them of the date and so you have people getting a sense of who you are before even getting there think of this in sales situations i specialize a lot in b2b sales within my business and companies that i consult with on the communication strategy side and let's say you are a cruise line 
that is trying to sell to travel advisors who then sell to their clients. Well, these cruise lines as a brand may have this beautiful marketing video that was put together, but it's one marketing video and there is no one size fits all in marketing. But now let's say you have 12 regional sales reps. Each of those reps with their own avatar can send custom messages to everyone that says, you know, for example, pretending I'm a travel advisor, you know, hi, Jill, our cruise line just released its new marketing campaign. I think you are particularly find it useful for your multi-generational traveling uh, clients. So definitely check it out and think of those people while you're watching so you know who to send it to. Right, You get more targeted and personalized messages with that delivery. And it's a way for small business owners when you don't have a lot of time and resources but want to create some really you know, kick-butt customer experiences to be able to leverage your likeness and presence in a new way. To me, it's effectively a different channel of communication, not replacing the real you on video, but it's where you would maybe like to do video, but you know you never will because of time and resource constraints. All right. Fascinating. Jill, let's change conversation tracks, please. Tell me the entrepreneurial history. What was the light bulb? What was the first action? Who the partners? Where'd you get the money? How'd you find a name? Entrepreneurial history, go. So I started uh, very early when I was in grad school, started my first business then and did it after someone reached out to me to consult for them. And I was oh, wow, I can make a business. Pretty soon I was speaking all over the country on uh, digital education, online education. And one day I picked up the phone to take a call and they said, great, will you come speak here? I'm like, well, what's the date? Does it work? Yes, it does. Then they asked me the magic question, what's your fee? And I'm like, oh shit, I can make a business out of this. This is great. So started my professional speaking business. Through that, ended up meeting people as one does in networking. And the company that I am a a partner and chief experience officer at now, Render, um, actually came about through some people that I did some pro bono work with back when we were all living in New York City together. Uh, Saw them at a conference, said, hey, we're doing something new. You want to check it out? I said, sure. These two guys had been in business together before. They'd known each other 15 years, and I came on as the third partner. So they had gotten um, the on-ramp with the concept and everything developed. I became the first person who was using it with uh, commercial success in my business and able to go speak about it and everything. So we combined forces, um, self-funded at this point as a startup, um, which is great. And also knowing that on the scalability side, the investment is in the horizon. But we've uh, been self-funded to this point, have a partnership team of three and multiple, multiple dozens of contractors that we work with for different areas of the business. And what are the revenue streams? Um, For Render, our revenue stream is in creating, producing, and we have a subscription application for hyper-realistic avatars. We're essentially the aggregators of everything for managing your digital likeness. There are now, let's say, four major players out there in the, you know, we can clone your video presence space. And they're all good for different reasons. They all have strengths and they all have weaknesses. So depending on what your business needs, we'll help you pick the best one and we merge it with our application. And actually, honestly, none of them have the best audio. So we found another audio provider we like better and we merge them with that. So we make our revenue um, mainly through that, you know, subscription base and then obviously producing these avatars as well. So could I create a script and then have my avatar present it? 
Yep. As many times as you want. You could oh, even wow. do it uh, strategically. For example, um, for every show that you're introducing, you have a key, few key phrases that you always use, let's say, and then you insert the name of the guest, insert the bio, all, all that type of stuff. You could have that done in your video clone or your vocal clone or both and have that delivered. You could use that then to repurpose any content that you have. If you, for example, pop these shows into a tool like uh, Cast Magic is one that I really like, Cast Magic. Magic.ai, it will give you summaries of the show and you could take that script, plop it in with your avatar and have short promo videos that you roll out rapidly. Neat. So you say subscription, uh, may I ask what that is? Yeah, absolutely. So once you have uh, your digital likeness produced with us, we have subscription options in our application um, starting at $200 a month and going up. And the subscription gives you access to the application, which merges best in class video with best in class audio. It allows you access to uh, trans uh, transcribe and translate your script into up to 28 different languages where your voice is actually delivering it. So it sounds like I fleet speak fluent fluent Hindi or uh, French. You know, the only thing I can really speak is English and Spanish, but you know, my avatar looks great in German given my last name, of course. And then you can upload any background you want. And then a video is produced. It gives you a custom landing page where you can have call to action buttons, unique URLs for tracking purpose and all of that all housed within an application. Wow. I will definitely be playing with that. You know, I just think that it's a wow factor. I think it will uh, excite people, you know, in sales just to be stand out from the pack. You know, I, I it's just an interesting, I don't know. I think it's just a cool way to present or to even add it. So if you have a Q and a on your website or a bio mm -hmm. on your website, you could add the video of it with the avatar of me reading the Q and a basically. And all I have to do is just, add, I don't have to do anything. I hire someone to do it. Now, I think that makes my website cooler. I'm going to do it. Well, it it absolutely does. And it's also strategic from a search engine optimization perspective because Google, for example, catalogs both text uh, and video and images, of course, too, and many other types of files on your site. So the more type of media you have on there, you have chances of ranking in different ways. So one of my clients, um, they're a medical practice in, uh, you know, for privacy sake. So a medical practice in a specific area where their website was not doing all that great for them, but they started adding video on top of the website. And so when people were doing local search for a specific area and a specific type of practice, they were ranking in the top page of video searches. And as we know, Google now integrates video searches in page one of results as well, if the video is answering a question that someone searches for. So you actually have less competition in that space if you have more multimedia elements like that to be able to rank in different ways on search engines. Wow, so cool. Wow, so cool. <laughs> and you self-funded this too. I have to think that you'll sell it you know, pretty soon for somewhere, I don't know, based on revenue and ROI projections. And I'm guessing somewhere around $4 trillion. Yeah. I mean, 4 trillion would be lovely. I mean, that would be a really nice ROI for us. Well, no, that's we... what the, the AI market is doing right now. <laughs> I mean, that, that's realistic in today's AI VC world. No, it is 
it is nuts. And we, what we've all agreed, like as a business team, as partners have agreed is we want to be the single most trusted and credible source for aggregating best in class forms for your digital likeness. Cause there's many companies out there that do a lot of things well, but you can't be the best of the best unless you are taking the best and the best and merging them together. So our expertise is really in not only that merging and aggregation, um, providing a one easy use application for clients, but it's also what I get to do, which is the gift, which is strategy. I mean, I, that I am aware of, I am the only person in the world who has researched and published a scientific study on the efficacy of hyper-realistic avatars relative to their same human counterpart. So having real research, science-backed, use cases, strategy, you know, I want people to be able to use this in meaningful ways to improve their lives by leveraging their time smarter to improve the lives of their customers, giving them a better experience. And my next hope is, you know, I'm trying to find the right partner in the medical space and it's hard with HIPAA and all the other rules to be able to test pilot medical communication with, you know, likenesses of doctors as a way to just kind of reinforce that follow through after appointments. That's a good one. Did you take your pills? This is Dr. Phil asking, did you take your pill? Right. I mean, we do have studies in, you know, authority and compliance and all of that. And I don't say those terms in negative ways that when you have a source that you know, like, and trust, you are more likely to follow through on an action when that source is the one communicating. And what do you maybe get? You may get a text reminder from the doctor's office, but I'm curious what would happen. I have a hypothesis, but I don't know. But what would happen if with that text message was a 15 second video with the likeness of your doctor that says, Hey, Jill, thank you for coming in last week. I want to remind you how important it is to stay on top of this medication for the next 30 days, because if you don't do that, we won't have accurate data for your next exam, right? Uh, will that increase compliance and follow through from people? I believe it will, but it's not tested yet. Right. Very interesting. Very interesting. Can you truly be a recovered academic? It doesn't sound like it, Jill. Jill. Here's, here's the deal. My, I try to put my stuff out in the public as much as possible. One of the things that I did not like about being purely in the academic space and being employed by an academic institution full-time was that um, at the time, I did not have a doctorate. The doctorate is a very recent thing um, within the past few months, actually. And I decided to go back. Thank you. Uh, decided to go back because I wanted to have that rigidity of, uh, you know, scientific rigor of credibility behind the work that I was putting out. And you just have a little more of that once you go through that credentialing. So I didn't want to be another entrepreneur who put out a, you know, half cocked survey and says, take my assessment online and, and tries to do that. There's some very valid reasons to do stuff like that, maybe for marketing, but putting that stuff off as real fact or backed by science is problematic. And I did not want to do that in my business. So for me, I'm not fully in the academic space, but I do play in that field. And I do believe in, you know, the rigor that's applied to the content that comes out. I just believe, gosh, there's so much good work going on there. People need to learn to get it out in public. And I'm actually teaching a class next year to a doctorate program to help them hopefully do just that. Fascinating. Absolutely fascinating. Jill, great stuff. I love uh, learning from you and I can't wait to see what this does and what this turns into. It's uh, 
scary, exciting, uh, <laughs> all of it, you know, the, uh, the Terminator movie in reality <laughs> now, but we don't know if we're going to get the good version or the bad version yet. So uh, no, you know, when you have your own, you know, digital IP, the, you know, the possibilities really are endless and there's so many fun ways to use it. So many serious ways to use it, but always for me, it's about letting people know like, yes, this is my digital likeness. You will get the real Jill, but this is just a reminder of kind of, you know, who I am, what I look like, what the interaction will be. It's also a really interesting psychological test at some level. If you know, say I have, I've done 2,500 shows that the AI could listen to. And what if it comes back and you go, Oh my God, that's what the AI thinks that I am on average. You know, that's, uh, it could be a really interesting way to learn what others truly think of what you're presenting. Well, it's fascinating. And we have some people, you know, will they'll come in and they'll get, we'll get the video clone, we'll get the vocal clone and they see the output. And especially when they hear the output, uh, they're like, wait, this isn't what I sound like. And then we play back the recording that they did in the studio for the footage that we use to create the vocal clone. And we're like, which one's which? And they're like, oh my gosh, I sound like that. And I'm like, that's what your recorded voice was. Like, if you want it to sound different, we're going to need you to record different because it's based in any AI. And this is something I say all the time. Any AI output is only as good as the human input. Junk in, junk out. Jill, how do we yep. find out more? Follow you online, sign up for some render media, all of the above, please. Yeah, um, I'm everywhere on social at Dynamic Jill. My last name is uh, quite a long one. Dynamic Jill was just much easier for people to find. So please uh, interact, engage anywhere on social at Dynamic Jill and then rendermedia.ai. Uh, you can go there, check it out. If you want to get on our mailing list, I am the one who you know puts out emails. We do a webinar every month, a 30-minute fast-paced webinar on specific use cases for synthetic media. And my goal is to just educate as many people as possible about what can happen when you leverage this technology i'm looking at your digital clone right now and it is <laughs> it's interesting that it has horns jill what's up with that you know you know someone must have played a prank on me with that doing it in post-production now i'm not no horns but i promise you my digital clone always shows up and wakes up like that i can tell you i do not <laughs> jill thank you so much for being with us great great stuff <laughs> thank you so much for having me we're out of time, but you know what we do? That's right. We come back. Be safe, everyone. Take care. Go make a million dollars. Bye now.